What a joy it is to be here tonight to have a chance to share from God's Word with you. And I appreciate that opportunity a lot. Please pray with me. Father, as we come together tonight from here from your Word, Lord, I pray it's your Word that will speak. Lord, I pray that my thoughts will flow well and that my speech will follow. I pray, Lord, that whatever I say, most of all, your word will come forth tonight. So bless us now as we work our way through this passage, and uh, Lord, open it up to us and uh, keep us from error. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, um, we're going to be talking from 1 Peter chapter 2 tonight, and... To get started into that, I first want to move over to 1 Corinthians and listen to some words from Paul. Paul said, Now I make it known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul found himself writing to the church in Corinth that he had helped found to remind them of the foundation that he started with and what he brought as primary importance, that Christ had died according to the Scriptures and that he had been raised according to the Scriptures. Now, how did Paul find himself in this position? Did Paul start out as a young man looking to the future going, I want my career to be the missionary to the Gentiles? Paul's experience was very different than that. It was the exact opposite of that in terms of what he intended with his life. He was traveling around doing everything he could to get rid of the teachings of Jesus Christ And to see that his followers were put aside, that this movement that sprang out of an offshoot of what he might have considered Judaism, I don't know how he looked at it exactly, but he wanted it crushed. But in his travels, Jesus stopped and interrupted him. And in so doing, Jesus revealed himself to him. He saw a bright light, he had scales over his eyes he couldn't see, and he cried out, who are you? And Jesus said to him in a loud voice from heaven, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And Paul was sent to a nearby town and through the Holy Spirit, Jesus contacted Ananias and said, by the way, go over there and help out this guy, Paul. Ananias was thrilled, right? No, he said, I've heard of this guy. This is not a wise move. And he was told, no, I'm going to reveal to him what he will have to suffer in order to be my missionary to the Gentiles. And so he went, and Paul threw himself into this role wholeheartedly. To the point that he looked at his previous life and said, this is rubbish. I don't need anything to do with the attainments that he had. And he had a stack of them. He said, it's all about Jesus Christ. I want us to use that as a backdrop to what this passage in 1 Peter is going to teach us about who we are in Christ. 
and realize that like Paul, there's a lot to set aside. That our perspective on what it means to live in this world as believers should be very different than what it meant when we were just men of the world. Now, I want to give you a couple of things before I read the passage. One is a bit of a disclaimer. These verses contain mountains more great information and encouragement and direction for us as believers than I'm going to begin to touch. Uh, John MacArthur only takes seven sermons to do these verses. So, maybe it was six, I don't remember. So, tonight, I'm just going to scrape over the top because there's a specific point I think I need to get to. The other thing I want to do before I read these verses is give you a little bit of context. I love context when I'm bringing the Word of God. The first one is, if we look back in the first chapter at verse 23, Peter is telling these people, reminding them, you've been born again from an imperishable seed, a spiritual seed. You're spiritually alive, eternally alive. That seed that came to life in you is a seed that brings a life that will never die. And then when he starts into chapter 2, he says, set aside worldliness, get rid of fleshliness, long for the pure milk of the word so that you can grow with respect to your salvation. So he's talking to people, looking to them to grow and to move from their beginnings and mature in Christ as eternal living beings. So now let's look at 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. And coming to him is a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God." You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And as we discuss these verses tonight, I'm going to divide it up into three headings, if you will. The first is the believer's holy priesthood. That's verses 4 through the first half of 7. The unbeliever's peril in verse the second half of 7 and 8. And the privileged people of God who have a purpose, verses 9 and 10. So Peter starts this passage with the words, and coming to him. We know what those words mean. That means coming to believe to Jesus Christ as a Savior, acquiring saving faith, the gift of God, putting, him, putting us in Jesus' own kingdom. 
Jesus even used these words about coming to him. In John 6, 37, he said, all of the Father gives to me will come to me. And later on in that same chapter, he says, no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. It's very clear that by this, Jesus means becoming one of his followers, coming into his kingdom. And so Paul say, Peter says, and so coming to him, verse 4, he continues to say, as a living stone. Now, stones and being alive are not something we typically would equate, is it? I don't remember the last time you saw a stone that would either move or speak, but I'm guessing it's rare. Now, these don't fit together exactly, do they? So why would he say a living stone? Well, Peter's going to use a metaphor of the, a stone to build a building and so on, but he can't let it sit there like Jesus is something unanimated because Jesus is no ordinary stone. And Jesus is alive. In Romans 1, 4, it says, who was declared the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And so when we come to Jesus, and no matter what metaphor we want to talk about, he is a living being. And so Jesus is a stone that's alive in Peter's way of explaining what's coming. And so continuing on, he said, so we come to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men. Peter lived through the real-time rejection of Jesus by the Jews, the leadership and the people in Jerusalem, many who were there because it was the Passover, and they rejected Jesus. And it's kind of amazing that they would reject the Messiah, if you think about it a minute. The Jews have been waiting for Messiah for centuries. They placed their hope in a Messiah that would come and would do the things that they saw that were prophesied. And what they imagined that was going to be was a person very different than Jesus. Why did they reject him? Because he did not measure up. They expected, wanted a political man. They wanted a warrior. They wanted a Messiah that would raise them up to be the greatest nation on the planet. And they anticipated when that happened, these Romans that were occupying their land would get thrown out. And they would be the envy of the world because of not only the, what, how strong they would become, but how they were the chosen people of God. But when they looked at Jesus, he wasn't those things. And so they set him aside. They didn't just set him aside. They tried to wipe him out. Not only were they not willing to follow him, they wanted him dead. And they got their wish. But God did indeed raise him from the dead, making him our living stone. But Peter brings about the contrast here. He said, but in the sight of God... This rejected living stone was choice and precious. Choice means he was chosen, he was selected, he was the one. And we know that God looked at Jesus with favor. When Jesus was baptized, what did he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he was also precious. If we were to just look at possessions, we would put some words that would go with precious to be costly highly prized, maybe very rare. 
But when we think about it with people, when you say, my precious relative, you're not just talking about you like having them around. There's a relationship that goes with it, and that's true here for Jesus as well. He is a rare person, a rare being that has a relationship with God that makes him precious to God. God said he's my only begotten son. Jesus was the only one, the only being that has ever lived that could save mankind, that could save us, that was qualified to give his life as a ransom for many. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. So when we come to Jesus, Peter said, Come to him as a living stone, but he is rejected by men. And we should know that that rejection then extends to us as well. You follow a rejected leader, you're part of the rejected group, right? But, contrary to that, in the eyes of God, it is the opposite of rejection. His choice and precious. Peter goes on to say in verse 5, we also are then living stones. How are we living? Well, we are made alive in Christ. Romans 6, 5 says, if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be like him in the likeness of his resurrection. So we too then are living stones just as Jesus is, not to the same stature, but certainly in the same mold and following as his disciples. As we come to the living stone, we are born again into the likeness of the living stone. And as living stones, Peter said, we are then built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he, Peter extends this metaphor to using stones to build a structure. And he said, this is who you are. Your stone's being built up into a spiritual house. Now, obviously, we know we're not somehow stacked together to be some sort of a physical house. It is certainly spiritual. It's certainly a metaphor. And in that metaphor, maybe we even ought to look at the word house a minute. Have you, you probably have heard in the last number of days the phrase, the house of Windsor. Is that a structure somewhere? No. It is a, an institution. Well, in this case, maybe he means like the house of David or the house of Abraham. Here we are built up as a house, a, function, a functional institution that is spiritual and certainly eternal and not temporal. And out of that, then, we have a priesthood. Well, what does that mean? It's certainly not like the priests that were seen in Peter's day in Jerusalem. Those people were priests because they were descendants of Levi. Levi, And their task day in and day out was to carry out the functions of the temple and the other things that went on with the, Judy, 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 the Jew system in worshiping God, which was blood of bulls and goats and other sacrifices as a as a way to express their uh, repentance for sin. But as we know from the book of Hebrews, that sacrifice was never sufficient because they had to keep doing it over and over and over again. But that ended when Christ made an adequate sacrifice on the cross. He was able to cover our sins because his blood shed for us and our sin and for every other person that would believe was adequate. 
So what kind of priests are we? Well, we are holy priests, meaning the word holy is separated. That word holiness means to be set aside, to be cut off, to not be a part of everything, but to be off on its own. It is a cutting. And what are we separated from? From sin and corruption. We couldn't be separated from sin and corruption apart from what Christ did settling our own sin debt and setting us free from that. But it also does something else spiritually. It allows for us to have a relationship with the Holy God Most High. Were we not separated from sin and destruction and all the rebellion that goes on in the lives of men, including our own, well, we would not be able to have that kind of an open relationship with God and with Jesus. And we are to be priests offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Christ. That starts with ourselves. Romans 12:1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And the only way we can offer that sacrifice is through Christ. And those acceptable sacrifices, that's our obedience, that's our service, that's our worship, that's our testimony. And then Peter goes on in verse 6 and says, we can also find this in Scripture. This is a part of prophecy. It's a testimony to God's sovereignty that Jesus wasn't here by some momentary thought, go, hey, let's do this now. No, it started even before the foundation of the world. We're not going to take the time to study that out. But the incarnate Jesus and his sacrifice and his lordship was a part of the plan before the world even started. And here's what he found from Isaiah. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. The eye there is God. And God says, I'm going to put in Zion, that's the city of God, probably thinking of Jerusalem, but certainly the city of God, a choice stone that is elect, it's chosen, it's the right one. That's precious. We've already seen these words, one of a kind, beyond price, personally treasured, perfect, as close as it could be, and we know with Christ he is. Now that cornerstone, that is a special stone, and I'm sure you've all heard this before, but it provides the basis for constructing a building. And in the style of construction used in that time, they didn't use mortar. Their good buildings were built of stone, and it was just one stone laid next to or on top of another stone. And so that cornerstone is very important. It has to be absolutely square. It's got to be absolutely flat on the top and the bottom. So as you build this building, when you get to the other side, the other corner meets too. You know, that's important. And as you put the stones up, they stack up straight and they don't lean as you go. And so this cornerstone was very precious and perfect And he continues in verse 6 to say, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Going back to the thinking about a cornerstone, can you imagine how disappointed the construction crew would be when they realized, hey, our corners aren't going to meet? That would be kind of a bad day to discover that, right? Or, hey, my wall looks good for a while, but then it starts to lean. You're going to have to do something about that because... It may not stay up. 
and it's certainly not going to stand the test of time. But if you're building on the stone of Jesus Christ, you're not going to be disappointed. It's all going to work. It's straight. It's true. It's correct. And you'll have, be part of a building, a spiritual building that is sound, sturdy, and unshakable. So in these verses 4 through 7, the first half of 7, we've seen that we are a holy priesthood of living stones. We're built on a foundation with Jesus Christ as our Savior, but we also know he was rejected by men and continues to be rejected by men. But in the eyes of God, he's choice and precious, and we're added to that building as living stones, as priests to bring sacrifices that are acceptable to God by how we live and what we do and the way we're obedient to him and worship him. And in the first half of 7, he says, this then is a precious value to the believer. Is it? You know, this could almost be a little bit of a test. Right now, how precious is being built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ to you and your conscious side. Oh, I know. I know down deep. You don't want to be in the condemned group. And I know you're happy about that. But as we really, if we really understand what's happening here, he will be of very precious value to us as our cornerstone. In the last half of verse 7, Peter moves on to the peril of the unbeliever. And it says, for the unbeliever... The stone that the builders rejected, which we know is Jesus, became the very cornerstone. Well, yeah, we've already said that, but why is that a problem? To their dismay, this stone that they set aside and it said, it doesn't measure up. I not only don't want anything to do with it, break it into little pieces and throw the pieces away. No, that stone really was selected and placed. And so that stone is there. The stone they judged becomes the judge of them. You can't recognize what's straight and true and correct. That is straight and true and correct. Oh, and you don't line up with that? So then it becomes, in verse 8, a stone of stumbling. They don't fit in with it. It trips them up. When the clear, clear role of Jesus Christ, when, he, when it's clear that he's truly the Son of God, that he truly came to save you, and he's the only way you can be saved, when they hear that, is that a popular thing for unbelievers to hear? No, I don't want that. You, how arrogant of you to say that it has to be the way you're doing it. No, it's not the way I'm doing it. It's the way God said it had to be done. It's what Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Those are words that trip them up. They can't deal with it because they want to take their own path to God, and it won't get them there. And so not only is it a stone of stumbling, but it's also as they are taken out of sorts, a stone of offense. Jesus Christ and his message, as even his existence, is offensive to the unbeliever. And it brings them shame. But yet they continue in their stubborn rejection of Jesus Christ so often. Verse 8 continues to say they stumble because they're disobedient to the word. God's word provides the clarity. God's word provides the direction. God's word provides the truth. But they are unwilling to follow it, and so it causes them problems. To the point, it says, Peter does, to this doom they were appointed. Recognize 
that it isn't because they were doomed that they reject Christ. It's the other way around. They reject Christ, resulting in their doom. And so that is the peril for the unbeliever. Jesus Christ, instead of being a savior, becomes something they stumble around and stumble over and are judged by and leads to their own appointed doom. Let's go on to verses 9 and 10, which we find to tell us what it means to be the privileged people of God and the purpose that we have. And it's even more clear, more descriptive than the verses we've already read. So he finished up in verse 8 talking about the people of doom, the unbelievers. In verse 9, he uses an emphatic injunctive of but. It's strong. He says, but you are a chosen race, chosen, selected by God as a people. I don't know what your ethnic heritage is. There was actually a little talk of that at my table. Somebody say, well, I have some Italian and whatever. But we become not what we were ethnically. We become children of God. We are a chosen race. God chose us to be the race that is his, selected by God and produced by God to be a people. The next description is we are a royal priesthood. Once again, this is very strong contrast with Levitical priesthood. Under the Jewish system of priestliness and kingliness, you have priests and you have kings. And priests were forbidden to be kingly and do king things. And kings were forbidden to be priestly and do priest things. As a matter of fact, there's a few examples in scriptures where a king tried to do priestly things and it didn't work out so well. But this says that we are kingly priests. The only priest in the Old Testament that was both king and priest was Melchizedek. You remember Melchizedek? Abraham chased some kings down that had come and taken Sodom and Gomorrah off as hostages and looted them. And Abraham went, Abraham went and brought them all back. And as he came back, he met Melchizedek. Melchizedek's name means righteous, and he is the king of Salem. He is both king and priest. And when we get over to the book of Hebrews, we find out that he was a type, we call it, kind of a model for Jesus' priestliness. Jesus wasn't a priest as a Levitical person. Jesus was a priest because, like Melchizedek, God said, you're a priest, Jesus was a king because God said, you're a king, king of kings and lord of lords, and also our high priest. And he is the perfect high priest going into the perfect temple in heaven, of which the temple on earth was just a faint picture of. And so Jesus is both king and priest selected by God. And as we come to Christ, we join with him in those roles. As a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy 2, 10 through 13, getting at kind of a hint at a kingly role, Paul says to Timothy, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and its eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And so... Paul is looking ahead to when the followers of Christ reign with him. 
Peter continues, the next description is you are a holy nation. We already have talked about being set apart, being uncorrupt, being righteous, and it's from the world. What kind of a separation is this, by the way? It's not monkish. We're not to go off and be in a monastery separated physically from the world, but instead we're separated from the worldliness of the world. We're separated from participating in the corruption of the world. And also in our separation, we have an intimate relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and our lives become a pursuit of holiness instead of a pursuit of those temporal things that we pursued before. It's a focus on the eternal instead of the temporary. And we also then are a nation. A lot of us might hesitate a moment here but we're part of the kingdom of God. Now, am I still a U.S. citizen? Yeah, I'm still a citizen. I still live here. I still interact with the world. But if you want to stop and take a look at who we are, we are much less U.S. citizens or Americans than we are members of the kingdom of God. And as a matter of fact, if you look down at verse 11... How does people, I'm not going to borrow 11, I'm going to stop with 10. But how does he start that verse? He urges them to live as aliens in this world. Oh, that's not what we're used to thinking about, is it? Peter goes on, you're a people for God's own possession. He said something similar to the Jews. In Exodus, he said, you shall be my possession among all the people. What does it mean to possess? It means to acquire, to purchase, to have their own ownership over. We get something similar said about us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. The price that was paid for us being a people for God's own possession was the death of Christ on the cross. He shed his blood not only to purchase us out of slavery, but it was out of slavery to sin and now we belong to God and we are slaves for righteousness. And then we get to a couple of words that are the linchpin of what I want to tell you tonight. And that is so that. God had a purpose in all of these ways we've been described. And don't we want to be described that way? I mean, if we really understand what we've just read, our self-image, who are we in Christ, is pretty clear that we're not people of this world. We've been made a very different people. We're not just people that live and add Christ to what we believe in. We are born again. The old is gone and the new has come. And there's a purpose for our existence as a different people, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our purpose in being members of the kingdom of God, our purpose in being this royal priesthood is that we will be proclaimers. We will be energetic advocates, zealous about it, evangelists, announcing, telling all who will hear about the excellencies of him, God. 
who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What are his excellencies? Well, that would take a long time tonight. Just to hit some of the obvious categories, his grace, his power, his love, his justice, his sovereignty, his forgiveness, his putting within us, back from chapter 1, an imperishable seed. And one of the evidences of his excellentness is he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Does that mean that we were outside on a moonless night and he brought us in where the lights were on? No. Darkness, sin, corruption, rebellion, lies. As a matter of fact, we could keep going and say, men with a death sentence on us. Men condemned to eternity for our own rebellion. But when we go into his marvelous light, we are blessed with truth, salvation, forgiveness, Freedom from slavery to sin. Oh, yes, as we heard tonight, we still have to fight the battle. But holiness to Christ is applied to us. When Jesus went to the cross, it says our sins were placed on him. Even though he knew no sin, he became sin for us. That his righteousness can be imputed to us. Do we have anything excellent to talk about? Yes. He took us out of the darkness of condemnation and put us in the marvelous light of joyous living for eternity with the truth and with Christ. He goes on in verse 10 to say, For once you were not a people. You were just the beings on the planet going nowhere except hell. You were lost in darkness. But now you are the people of God. You went from nothing to exalted as God's people. Once you had not received mercy, you stood condemned, lost in sin, guilty. But now you have received mercy. You have salvation and sanctification. And we could spend a night talking about sanctification, but we're not going to take the time. So, to summarize it, believers are set apart. We're sanctified. We're made holy to share in kingly and priestly function with Jesus himself. It flows out of relationship and privilege. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's precious to God and he is precious to us. But all of this has a purpose. It's not just to make us somebody, but it's so that we can serve as priests proclaiming God's excellencies. We too, like Paul, should both know and focus on our first priority proclaiming the excellencies of God. We should be encouraging fellow believers, those fellow saints in the kingdom with God's excellencies. We also should be proclaiming the gospel to the worldly. That's part of his excellency is that God has sent Jesus, his son, and that invitation is extended to you too. So let's stop and visit for a minute. Let's apply this to the world we live in today. If you are my age, you might say, this is really strange. I'm watching a culture and a society go places that 
as a child growing up are unthinkable. That anybody would even suggest some of the things that are being accepted today as truth, as the best way, as good things. You know what I'm talking about. It includes the family coming apart, changing the definition of what it might mean to be a family. I'm not sure where we're at with that. But it also includes the unnatural, homosexuality. I mean, it just, it's just everywhere that our culture is just unwinding. And we ignore the things that made a great nation. And that might even be up for argument among many, but there hasn't been anything else like it in the history of the world. We do things that, when I look at it, I go, this is so foolish. And it's sad. It's unsettling. It's scary. And it's very tempting to me. It's tempting to me to say, how can I get into this and help stop this and correct this? How can I be all in? And... I listened to a program on a Christian radio station coming in tonight that focused almost entirely on what's going on in the political world, where we're gaining and where we're losing. And that's tempting to me. But that isn't our priority. Peter made it clear what our priority is. It's not about trying to save this country from itself. It is proclaiming the excellencies of God. And I want to give you a couple of reasons why it wouldn't work anyway. And the first one I want to take you to is, you know, my inclination would be to try to get involved with this mess, with trying to show people the truth, by to be logical, showing them the contrast between the path that you might choose here versus the path you might choose there, why this political answer is good and that one's going to just make a mess of things. But we're not talking to people that can think like we do. They can't. Look back at verses 4, 7, and 8. Jesus Christ has been rejected by the people of this world. And with that goes the opportunity to measure life well and correctly. When they rejected Jesus as the cornerstone... They're no longer interested in truth. Did they only tell the truth at Jesus' trial? They made up whatever lies they thought they needed to to make it work. Have you seen any of that today? Things that when you hear them, you go, why did you say that? That is just, that is unbelievable. But they say it often enough, enough people start believing it. If we were to look at Romans 1... We would see the decline that a person goes through as they pursue a life of sin. And when you get toward the end of it, he says a couple of things in amidst a whole bunch of bad things that are the result. And one of them is that God gives them over to a depraved mind. Can't think straight. And and not understanding. They don't understand. 
So try to have that logical discussion with the unbeliever about the foolishness that we're going into. There's another reason why. Jesus had a name for Satan called the prince of the air and the ruler of this world. Now, I'm not saying everybody that's not a believer is openly, willingly, knowingly a Satanist, but they're following the influence of Satan. And that influence is going to continue to be applied and will keep us from being effective. I want to take you one more place and then we'll wrap this up. Let's imagine for a moment that the people in this world who are not believers could think logically, weren't influenced by Satan to the point they couldn't get past it, that still would let their minds work well and that they would somehow intuitively recognize good and we would start talking to them and we would be wildly successful and we would get the unbelievers along with us convinced of the right ways to have a country and that all the things would start working out well, good economic policies, uh, good government, a government made up of leaders that wanted to serve the people, not themselves. I mean, it's just unbelievable success. And not only that, not just in this country, but around the world. What would we have accomplished? We would still have a very happy world on its way to hell. We would have a very short lifespan of good because it would have an eternity ahead of it of destruction unless those people become believers in Jesus Christ. But let's look at what God called us to. Proclaim his excellencies. Tell the people the truth about God. Invite those people to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Little by little, as that happens, we've really done some good. We've created people that will look at the world differently. Like the blind man, they would say, once I was blind, but now I can see. Would it fix the world? No. The fix for this world is coming when we get a new heaven and a new earth. Now, am I trying to say we should have nothing to do with the world that lives and we live in? No. I'm still going to advocate for the right issues. We put a sign up out here that said, vote yes. Do you remember? We're still going to go for the right issues. I'm still going to try to find the best candidates to vote for. I'm still going to help people see the truth if I can. But what I'm convicted about, and I'm preaching to me at least as much as anybody here, is my primary goal needs to be proclaim the excellencies of God. That's what will make a difference. And I'm also going to work at not seeing myself primarily as a, an American, but as a part of the family of the kingdom of God. And I think that is the path that we're all called to. And I think Peter made it pretty clear. Let's pray. Father, it doesn't come naturally to us. We live in this world every day. We're caught up in the difficulties of it. We have to take care of families. We have to do our jobs. There's so much that is consumed of us by the world. 
and so much of the world that we have to consume just to keep surviving. And Lord, you did call us to be salt and light to the world. So we want to be salt and light, but Lord, put in our hearts an understanding of what it means to be in your kingdom first. Lord, we know that it's often difficult, even feels unnatural, to try to mix into our conversations your excellencies to people that don't believe in you. Lord, give us wisdom, give us insight, lead us in that, and Lord, bring people to your kingdom that they may know what it means to be in the kingdom of God for eternity. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. I missed a line, so I'm going to go back and get it. I've got to ask you one question. God sent Jonah to Nineveh. He didn't go to Nineveh, did he? Why? Somebody want to answer that? Why didn't Jonah go to Nineveh? What? He knew, he even said so after he was there and it happened, I knew you were going to save them. Well, we ought to at least have as much confidence in what God would do as Jonah would. 